This week, I'm in conversation with Dr. Adam Lerner on state consciousness and the intersection between international relations theory and the philosophy of mind. I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. And, uh, of course, that sort of intersects with eating elephants, which is a weird, weird image. Let me let me just say, I'm a vegetarian. I do not endorse eating elephants. Um, I'm a big fan of elephants. I love elephants. Uh, but uh, I, I forget what it was. I was at a conference where someone talked about the, the metaphor. I don't know if it was eating ele- uh, how do you eat an elephant um, one bite at a time. I, I don't know if it was that or it was something about when you're looking at gigantic things up close, you need to, you know, take a number of different perspectives at once. Uh, you can't see everything at once. It's a, it's a good metaphor. It kind of alludes to this idea that when you have really complicated questions, you need to tackle them from multiple angles and take multiple multiple bites at it. Well, it's definitely going to be used in whatever thing I write next. <laughs> Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Adam Lerner on state consciousness and the intersection between international relations theory and the philosophy of mind. We're going to be discussing the extent to which states are themselves conscious entities and what this means and how this can be explored. Dr. Adam B. Lerner is a permanent lecturer of international relations at Royal Holloway University of London and the deputy director of Royal Holloway's Centre for International Security. His first book, From the Ashes of History, Collective Trauma and the Making of International Politics, will soon be published by Oxford University Press in March 2022. His published articles and works have appeared in the European Journal of International Relations, Perspectives on Politics, International Studies Review, International Theory, the Journal of Contemporary Asia, and the Cambridge Review of International Affairs, among others. Hi, Dr. Lerner. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. So, Dr. Lerner, I know that you've recently written a paper uh, called, or recently published a paper, sorry, called What's It Like to Be a State? An Argument for State Consciousness. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, in what way do you understand consciousness? Okay, well, thank you so much for having me, Kieran. And uh, please just call me Adam. Um, so yes, this paper uh, was published about, I guess, a year ago online first, and now it's been put in an issue. And I've always been fascinated by philosophy of mind, and so that was kind of the foray into this. Um, so how do I understand consciousness? This is a great, but actually surprisingly difficult question. Um, consciousness is something we all experience very intimately. Um, when we think about consciousness, it's something we have a very intimate experience of. But then at the same time, when we think about how to define it, it's actually easier said than done. Um, in many ways, consciousness is the most important thing we have because without consciousness, we wouldn't experience anything else and we'd have a really uh, tough time forming any other aspects of our identity. So definitions of consciousness that I read in philosophy of mind literature range pretty widely. And I find that the most compelling way to define the concept is to sort of compile a list of attributes or features. And that way we can come up with a sort of spectrum or scale of consciousness. Um, we can say that some things like human beings possess more of it, possess a sort of complete version of consciousness. And then other things like very simple animals um, or primitive robots possess only maybe one or two of those traits. 
So in this paper, I try to compile that list and I, I rely on the work um, primarily of David Chalmers, a very well-known philosophy of mind uh, scholar um, to do that. And I, I compile what I call nine aspects of consciousness and try to create this spectrum. So the first eight of these are what we would call the cognitive or psychological aspects of consciousness. These are the aspects that have to do with processing ability and um, that we can sort of model a, a computer doing, a chemical computer. They include things like being awake, uh, the ability to be introspective, to know what's going on inside of your system, the ability to report one's inner states, awareness of oneself or self-consciousness, uh, the ability to pay attention, voluntary control over one's actions, uh, the retention of knowledge and memory, and awareness of one's own environment. And these are all things we could potentially imagine a very sophisticated robot possessing, though they would likely look different in a robot than they do in a human being. The ninth aspect I added, this ninth, uh, uh, the last, the final one, is what David Chalmers calls the hard question of consciousness, and it has to do with qualitative experience. Um, this is the idea that, in the words of the philosopher Thomas Nagel, that there's something that it's like to be a conscious being. Uh, he has a very famous essay called What It's Like to Be a Bat. Um, there's something that it's like to be a bat because the bat is conscious. So this refers to the idea that we have an inner subjective life that's going on. We have sort of a movie playing in our head. And when we feel pain, we, we actually feel the experience of it. We feel what it feels like when we touch something hot, that we feel a burn. And uh, this sort of accompanies a lot of the functionality that, that um, in the first eight aspects, to be sure, some of these eight aspects can be done without uh, a, the, the, a phenomenal experience accompanying it, but, but the phenomenal experience oftentimes accompanies other aspects of consciousness. So in philosophy of mind, to understand this aspect of consciousness, they often use a thought experiment, a thought experiment about a woman named Mary. Uh, Mary lives in a black and white room and has access to just the best educational resources there are. Um, now, everything in the room is black and white. Uh, all she can see is black and white, but she learns everything there is to know about how eyes process color, the wavelengths of light, everything um, that there, there is that has to do all of uh, the best knowledge about how um, human beings process colors. One day she's led out of this room, uh, the black and white room, and finally sees a red dress. Um, has she learned anything new? If you're inclined to say that, yes, she has learned something new, that she learned what it's like to see the color red, the experience of seeing the color red, then this is where the ninth qualitative um, aspect of consciousness comes in. This is why we refer to something called qualia. So this, this final aspect of qualitative experience is actually a bit controversial in philosophy of mind. Um, if you believe that it is something distinct, oftentimes people label you what's called a dualist, meaning that you think there's something sort of separate between the material and ideational worlds, the material and conscious worlds. Uh, some scholars uh, like Keith Frankish and Dan Dennett are what you would call illusionists. They think that uh, this sort of phenomenal experience, the phenomenology that accompanies consciousness is just your brain playing tricks on you. Um, however, uh, though I can't tell where it comes from, I personally think our intuition about qualitative experience, being real, being something that science needs to explain, that uh, social scientists need to grapple with. I think that's that's a very strong intuition. And I think it's a real aspect of consciousness that we need to incorporate into our definition. Um, in many ways, we wouldn't really uh, 
you know, be able to talk about consciousness without this phenomenal experience. That's what gives, breathes life into consciousness. So I add that in as the ninth aspect. So to summarize the answer to your question, question consciousness is sort of this, this grouping of all of these different attributes or aspects. And I think the, the qualitative experience one is an important one that we, we need to consider. Okay, thank you. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> and thank you for bringing in the Mary knowledge argument. I really, really appreciate that. I'm teaching some students that at the moment, so I can kindly direct them to you <laughs> to explain that. Um, okay, so in your paper, you argue that states, insofar as they are typically understood and analyzed as unitary persons in international relations scholarship, exhibit key characteristics of consciousness including both psychological and phenomenological aspects. Could you flesh this out a little bit for us? Absolutely. Um, so I should start with the idea that in international relations scholarship and in a lot of different social science literature, you'll see this idea emerge that states are corporate persons, kind of the equivalent of uh, corporations under um, most legal systems. They're treated as unitary actors. Um, now there's a great debate over whether this is purely a metaphor or whether it's something real, but Alexander Wendt argues that it is something real. So in order to understand states as conscious, I think we need to take a step back and examine them as persons macroscopically. So, you know, zoom out to uh, space, you know, the level of uh, an international space station where you can look down at uh, states. This might seem difficult, but remember that our brains are complex systems too, and, and we just intuitively think of them as cohesive wholes because of our perspective. We, we talk to one another and hear unitary voices coming out of other people's heads. We organize human life around the idea that individuals are persons or cohesive, but you know, if you cracked open someone's skull, there's a complex system that's producing that. So we need to take ourselves out of that level of being embedded in the system and examine the state uh, macroscopically. And so that'll allow us to think analytically about consciousness and avoid uh, what the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel calls neurochauvinism. It's the belief that consciousness can only occur in humans or human-like creatures with uh, neurons and or neuron-like systems. Consciousness may very well occur in all sorts of unlikely places. And Eric Schwitzgabel has a number of thought experiments that show us that it can occur in distributed systems that are spaced out like a state. So if we take this step back and we look at states as macro systems, we see that they're actually able to meet a lot of the criteria of consciousness in a non-metaphorical way. States are alert to changes in their environment. Um, you know, if uh, the Chinese send uh, boats to the, the shore of California, the, the US is alert to that, they're, they'll be able to respond. They monitor what's going on inside of them and they report it externally through various media, whether it's censuses or um, you know, press releases from the government, all sorts of different uh, forms of reporting. They can direct resources towards larger goals. I think a great example of this in international relations is waging war. Uh, when a state goes to war, they'll direct all sorts of diverse resources to the war effort. They exert control over institutions and these institutions actually orient large numbers of people's behavior. And they possess massive repositories of information, whether it's in archives and data sets or even in the minds of their citizens. And these constitute forms of state knowledge. And I also wanna point out that this comes from the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel as well. If we consider the simplicity of consciousness in a mouth, 
in a, excuse me, in a mouse or another small responsive animal like a gerbil or something, we can appreciate that the sort of information processing and goal-directed behavior of a state is actually fairly complex. And we can demonstrate this complexity mathematically by looking at the number of con uh, connections or the amount of information that passes um, from uh, one part of the brain or one part of the state to another in making decisions. But suffice it to say that a mouse couldn't organize a war effort or launch a mission to the moon or even oversee an Olympics opening ceremony. So this is what I think uh, can alert us to the fact that states are engaged in a lot of non-metaphorical uh, conscious behavior. As a state, as a system, I think can be treated uh, as conscious, at least in that, that sort of uh, principle way, that sort of initial way, the psychological cognitive aspects. Okay. All right. That was explained very, very well, <laughs> if I may say so. <laughs> I was just sat Thank here laughing. At the, I was sat here laughing at the idea of a mouse opening uh, the Olympic Games. I think that would be <laughs> quite cool to see. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Okay. So, in the paper, you speak about something you call the middle school dance analogy. Would you be able to explain what you mean by this and relate it back to your notion of a thin social interaction? Yeah, absolutely. So I should begin by recognizing that this is a controversial analogy and it's rubbed some people the wrong way, um, but I, I really found it quite helpful in organizing my thinking about state consciousness. Um, so for those unfamiliar with the American educational system, middle school is the period between ages 11 and 13. And at least for me, it was a very awkward time. It's also the period when schools and summer camps, other uh, organizations will start to organize dances and when I was uh, that age group, I was very much encouraged to dance with the opposite gender, but this caused me an incredible amount of anxiety, uh, the idea of asking someone to dance. So when I think about myself as a conscious being during that period, um, I, there was a lot of complexity with what was going on within my psyche. I was constantly second guessing and contradicting myself. I felt like I had so many competing desires and I wasn't able to fully grapple with them coherently. And even when I did, um, you know, choose a course of action. I always second guessed it and was never fully happy with it. On the inside, I often felt as conflicted as we would say a state's domestic political system can be. Uh, you know, in the same way that in the UK, you have the Tories and, and Labour and just incredible amounts of political diversity that's leading to a lot of internal conflict. I had a lot of internal conflict going on inside me as well. You know, to a certain degree, there were Tories and and labor or Democrats and Republicans arguing within my own conscious consciousness. Um, nevertheless, I was also sufficiently old that if um, you were say a chaperone at one of those dances who was examining me from the outside in, who didn't have a, a link up to my consciousness, you know, you had to take seriously the fact that I was able to uh, make decisions for myself and, and take actions, take intentional actions. So if I went up to another person and asked them to dance or said something to a chaperone, the most useful way of treating me as it was as a uni unitary conscious actor. I was able to make decisions for myself and I wasn't just a jumble of conflicting neuroses that sometimes spilled over into behavior. So the reason I use this middle uh, metaphor um, primarily is to show that these two perspectives can exist simultaneous, simultaneously. There's the inside out look at how conflictual processes lead to decision-making. I think for anyone else who is as awkward as I was from 11 to 13, that'll feel intimate and resonate. Um, but then there's also the outside in of, you have to treat decisions as the result of a unitary actor. 
um, they aren't necessarily, these two perspectives aren't necessarily conflictual, but rather complementary. There are two perspectives on the same complex system. Consciousness is a very complicated thing, and it helps to look at it from different angles. So then if we scale up to the level of the dance itself, um, we can see some parallels with the international system in the thinness of the social interaction. What I mean by that is that uh, the amount of social interaction between states is not really at the same level of, say, a complex social life between adults, you know, where there's constant engagement. Uh, we, we live our lives in social atmospheres all the time. Most uh, politics occurs on the domestic level, and the international arena has a relatively thin level of politics compared to all of the work that's being done domestically. And so that's where I think the contrast between, say, a middle school dance where uh, people keep to themselves and keep quiet because they're awkward versus a, you know, a bustling adult cocktail party where people are much more comfortable interacting. I think that's helpful. Um, and I also really like this analogy because it points to the roles of anxiety and status in the international system. There's a good amount of literature nowadays on ontological insecurity, the role of anxiety in the international system, anxiety about personal about state identity, and then the role of status, uh, you know, rankings in the international system. These are two topics that uh, scholars debate frequently, and I think that this analogy can kind of clue us into a new way of thinking about them. And I also just really like that this analogy, uh, you know, emphasizes the international system's awkwardness. Um, and so it kind of can, uh, can be a nice contrast with some of the seriousness of academia. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean by the awkwardness. <laughs> when I was actually reading this uh, particular article, um, I, I think maybe that's why it resonated with me more. <laughs> yeah. I recall the, the Friday evening discos that were so awkward. <laughs> well, I should say, um, I should say that, uh, you know, every time I see one of these pictures of world leaders, you know, together at the G20 or the UN, uh, you know, I don't think of it. Uh, well, I think of it partially as this very official, uh, you know, circumscribed, like, uh, you know, forum. But then at the same time, I think this is profoundly awkward. These people must not get along very well. Can you imagine how boring these conversations are? So I think that it helps me imagine it and sort of uh, bring international politics down to a scale that I can uh, appreciate it a little more. You know, I was thinking about this, uh, must have been, what, two weeks ago when the uh, COP26 meeting of all the leaders were together. And I, I remember I was reading your paper at that point for a second time. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, it, we always used to socially distance at school dances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of reading it into that. And I never thought it would come back into you know, thinking about politics. But one thing that I'd like to ask is you said right at the beginning of your answer, that um, uh, this analogy kind of rub rubs people the wrong way. How would you respond to your critics? Yeah, well, I guess one criticism I got, at least in reviews of the article, was that it's a fairly Western biased analogy, that this is sort of an experience that I had growing up in, I'm, I'm from the Washington DC area. And uh, I mean, I, certainly there were some commonalities that you were talking about with the disco, but I think, uh, you know, that's a fair criticism. And obviously when we're doing international relations theory, we wanna make it as global as possible. And, and we want concepts that are transportable and meaningful to people in all different parts of the globe. Um, I recognize that um, I, so I'm, I'm putting forward this analogy as sort of, this is the way I personally think about it. 
Um, I think all of these analogies for the international system can be problematic. Uh, the two of the ones that you hear uh, quite often in inter international relations are uh, the international system as a billiards table, billiards balls bouncing off one another, or as of states as tectonic plates. Um, and if we dug into those analogies, they have their own problems associated with them. So I think all of these analogies are going to be imperfect, but really the, re the reason we make these analogies is to try and make some difficult ideas resonant with us on an individual level. And hopefully my analogy can do that without um, being, you know, without being too problematic. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you uh, if you'd be able to unpack a particular quote for us. So uh, we are who we pretend to be, so we have to be careful about what we pretend to be. Could you unpack that for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that is a quote. That's a quote from the, the book Mother Night, which is one of my absolute favorites. Um, they also did a movie of Mother Night with Nick Nolte. Um, so the book is about this uh, this... Well, I, I don't know if I want to give a spoiler, but the book is essentially about an American spy who, uh, you know, works for the Nazis. And at the end of the war, he's conflicted over whether in the process of working for the Nazis, he did did more good for the Nazis than he than he did for the Americans. And so it's this kind of thing where he pretended to be a Nazi for a long period of time. Maybe he was actually a Nazi. Maybe a Nazi was just what we pretended to be. And so I think this is helpful for me, at least, because I... I should say that in the paper, um, I don't know if I want to go into too much detail on this because it's quite technical, but I, I contrast materialist ontologies of consciousness with alternative ontologies. And I sort of favor, uh, I, I, I present a few different ontologies of consciousness, a few different, when I say ontologies, I just mean a few ways of understanding where consciousness comes from. So I present a few different ones. And I think that ultimately my favorite is understanding states as an as if conscious being. So that I understand states as conscious to the degree that we make them conscious. We craft states in our image. We, we turn them into international actors that act consciously. And then we analyze them as conscious actors. And so in the process of doing that, we, we create states to sort of act like international people, like corporate people. And I think that's where, um, at least for me, uh, someone who's not a materialist about consciousness, that provided a way of an, an, an entry point where this could be a meaningful argument. I could I could um, draw on the analogy uh, rather than you know buy every aspect of it. I, one of the things I try and do in the paper is demonstrate why people from a variety of different perspectives can use a model of the international system with conscious states as a helpful analytical tool. And this is kind of my way of understanding it. So I, I like that quote a lot. Um, and I think hopefully it's useful for people who are a little bit skeptical about the materialist argument, uh, the materialist argument that Eric Schwitzgabel makes um, that I talk about in the paper. One of the um, sort of impetuses for this uh, paper was I read a really fascinating paper by the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel called If Materialism is True, Then the United States is Probably Conscious. So what he means by that is that if materialism about consciousness, materialism means that the reason you're conscious is because you have a certain set of material stuff in your brain 
and it's organized into a system in a certain way that it produces consciousness. And it's, it, it's, it's just has to do with the stuff and the way it's organized. So maybe, you know, neurons organized into a big chemical computer in this way make you conscious. And he says that if that's true, then we have to recognize that there are enough commonalities with the way a state is organized, a state as a material set of stuff and people and territory and uh, information processing and archives and all this stuff. We have to appreciate that there are enough commonalities between the state as a material thing and the human brain as a material thing that we should probably conclude that the state is conscious. Now, for me, I, um, I don't fully buy that argument, although I see why it's compelling to materialists about consciousness. I'm not uh, as persuaded by a materialist argument about consciousness. And part of that is because materialism doesn't do a good job uh, providing an explanation for this phenomenological aspect of consciousness, qualia, when we get back to the Mary thought experiment, what it's like to see a color red. I don't really understand how purely material things uh, will produce that qualitative experience. And I think that we need something richer in our account of the material world, whether it's another property of matter, whether it's another substance. Uh, some people talk about quantum consciousness. I think we need something else to explain that. So what I'm trying to do in the paper is demonstrate that, you know, there's a lot of different theories of consciousness, a lot of different ways of understanding consciousness, and there's a lot of different ways of understanding the state. However, there's enough synergy between those two different conceptual debates that a lot of different people can benefit from this analogy. That's so helpful. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, think, I think you said that perfectly, to be honest. Thank I think, you. I think everyone listening is going to get that really, really well. <laughs> Great. Um, so I have one sort of question on the back of that yes. in, re in relation to uh, qualia or qualia. And don't, I don't mind you pulling this question apart either. Is uh, can you explain how states may feel qualia alongside just sort of, I know you've already done so, but just another brief explanation of what qualia is for those who might not know. Okay, great. So qualia is this term that in philosophy of mind refers to whatever it, the phenomenological aspect of consciousness is, this what it's like to be X. So if we go back to our thought experiment about Mary, Mary who's in the black and white room, and she sees the color red for the first time. Well, then she's also getting the qualia of redness, like the what it, what it what it's like to see the color red. We can think about um, another good way to understand this is to think about uh, what uh, philosophical zombies, which are often used in thought experiments and philosophy of mind. These are creatures that are just pure computers. They are able of doing to do. They're uh, capable of doing everything that human beings do but they don't experience qualia. So when a philosophical zombie stubs their toe, uh, you know, they, their brain processes a signal that says, uh, you know, avoid this, you might hurt your toe or something like that, but they don't feel pain associated with it. So the pain that comes along with stubbing your toe is the qualia that's, uh, that accompanies whatever the, the sort of chemical processing is. Uh, again, uh, going back to illusionists, illusionists think that qualia are illusions, that they're not, you know, something distinct, that it's an effect being produced in your brain. So in the paper, I try to ask, well, maybe uh, in the paper, I interrogate this question of, well, maybe one of the things that distinguishes human consciousness from potential macro level state consciousness is that human beings have this qualia. How can we show that 
that qualia meaningfully scale up. So in order to do that, I think about the example of the September 11th attacks and, and this, this more general question of terrorism. Terrorism is a pretty interesting international phenomenon because it's not something that's purely processed rationally. Uh, it's actually defined by the qualia it intends to produce, terror. It intends to you know, frighten and scare um, to make people act irrationally. Um, and so I think if we go back to the post 9-11 period, the qualia of fear and terror within Americans um, after the attacks was undeniable. Uh, you know, I was a, a kid when uh, September 11th attacks happened, and I remember being terrified. I actually had to sleep on my, on the floor of my parents' bedroom for a couple of nights because I was so scared. But what I argue in the paper is that that qualia is not just an individual thing that's isolatable from the state system. Rather, it's actually integrated into the state system. And it would be impossible to analyze the actions of the United States after the 9-11 attacks without integrating that qualia of fear and terror experienced by lots of different individuals into an, uh, an understanding of the state as a complex system that synthesizes individuals' desires into political representation and that political representation decides courses of action. We couldn't understand the United States response to 9-11 without incorporating the idea that Americans felt terror, they felt terrified. So in this sense, even if we don't have some notion of special qualia occurring on the state level, we need to understand individuals within the state as sort of experiential nodes within the processing of the state system. Their qualia necessarily shapes their actions and these actions are integrated into the state. So I think this is meaningful because oftentimes in the newspaper or in everyday conversation about international politics, you'll hear statements like North Korea is upset about the, these sanctions or uh, you know, China is afraid that the US will take X action. And I think that there's actually a real phenomenology behind those statements and that they would be impossible to analyze. They're not just pure metaphor. They, they, to analyze them, we need some appreciation of qualia. Okay. I love that. Really, really love that. You've got me sat at my desk thinking, <laughs> frivolously writing notes all over pieces of paper. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. No, I, do, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Okay, so what implications does your research have for IR theory broadly? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I think there's a few key implications. Though one of the reasons I wrote the paper was I'm really interested to see how people run with it in different directions. I think that's one of the fun parts of academia is you write something and hopefully people take it seriously and kind of go off and it inspires their ideas. Then, you know, I, I, I like this kind of, I, these, these long-term conversations we can have. So a few key implications. One is about this analogy for understanding the international system. Um, this is something I think about a lot when I'm teaching students, you know, how do we understand the international system? How do I explain the international system to students? So like I said, we often talk about states as billiard balls and the international system as a billiards table, or we talk about them as tectonic plates and uh, use a sort of geological metaphor. I think these analogies are important. And I think the middle school dance analogy might be a potentially rich one that we can add to our arsenal. It might be very useful in certain circumstances. I think this argument uh, about state consciousness provides some justification for using that analogy. And hopefully that analogy can help us understand what's going on in international politics uh, in a richer, more complex way from a new perspective. A second is that 
um, it provides a new spin, this argument about state consciousness, it provides a new spin on the levels of analysis issues that we deal with all the time in international relations. As IR scholars, we're constantly asking ourselves, uh, should we understand this phenomenon at the level of individual leaders, uh, at the level of domestic political organizations competing for influence, or at the level of states as unitary actors? And so my argument in this paper is we can actually adopt insight from neuroscience and philosophy of mind to deal with these issues. Philosophy of mind and neuroscience have fairly complex models for understanding the brain as conscious on a macro level, capable of producing unitary intentional action, but then also taking it apart and understanding how neurons compete and you know, through neurotransmitters could create all sorts of complex phenomena. And I think that that might um, allow us a, a richer conversation about levels of analysis in international relations. Maybe we can uh, take some insight from neuroscience and philosophy of mind. Finally, um, I think there's still some confusion, even though in international relations, the idea that the state is a corporate person is fairly widely held. There's still um, debates about whether that corporate personhood is metaphorical or real and material, how deep that personhood is. Is it just the state is a giant uh, chemical or a giant computer that uh, you know brings together all sorts of diverse inputs and processes them for an output? Or is it more, more like a human being? Is it more similar to a human being? Um, and so I think that uh, that debate um, is ongoing in international relations. And it leads to uh, a lot of debates about how we understand states' intentions. Or there's a, a really rich literature in international relations on emotions and international politics. So uh, some scholars like uh, Jonathan Mercer, Nita Crawford will say that you can actually look at macro level emotions uh, on the state level. Um, they have different arguments for understanding that. So their arguments aren't the same as mine, but they, they do look at um, macro level emotions. Um, I think this uh, argument about state consciousness rebuts the idea that these, uh, these ideas of state intentionality or state emotions are pure metaphor. And I think it provides a new way of understanding them, it provides a new model for understanding how, let's say, the UK's emotions or, or France's emotions or India's emotions actually emerge from the complex system of the state in the same way that uh, my own emotions, my being angry or my being happy emerges from the complexity of my neurons firing in certain patterns and, and uh, creating um, a, a larger effect. So hopefully it can do that. And then I think there's also probably implications that I, I don't foresee um, that other scholars will run with. I think for normative political theorists, for example, understanding states as conscious systems um, has enormous implications because oftentimes consciousness is one of the criteria we use to determine moral standing. And I'm not, you know, I don't really know uh, where that literature will lead, but it's it's a debate that I think might be worth having and might be interesting. That's something I allude to in the conclusion of the paper. So I'd love to see how uh, normative political theorists handle that question. Yeah, no, that would be a debate that's totally worth having. <laughs> and I'd love to see the outcome of that too, actually, is to, as you say, is to see how that idea evolves and adapts and changes amidst discourse with normative theorists. I think that'd be really cool. Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you that I ask every guest that comes on the podcast. So my first one is for you, what is politics or the political? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, that's really tough. I think whatever answer you give will sort of allude to 
you know, will take you down a path. Um, the way I like to think about it is that politics is about negotiating power, something about negotiating power and authority, ideas of power and authority. Now, those are two terms, power and authority, that are equally difficult to, de uh, to define. Um, you know, uh, I, Michael Barnett, uh, a scholar um, at George Washington University, uh, has written quite a bit on the concept of power and in international relations in different forms of power. But when I think about politics, I think about negotiating power and authority. Um, I, I think that when you deal with these gigantic questions, these big questions like what is politics, what is the political, it's kind of like eating an elephant. And, you know, you can only eat one, you know, that, that metaphor, uh, how do you eat an elephant? Uh, uh, like, or, uh, what is it? How do you eat an elephant? Start with like the first bite or something like that. I'm, I'm butchering that. But I think that you're necessarily going to have to focus on one thing or look at it from one angle. But I guess that's my initial foray uh, into answering the question. I don't think it's a great one. No, that's a perfect answer. That's a really, really good answer. So my last question for you is, who would you recommend to read if listeners would like to think a little bit more about the intersection between philosophy of mind and international relations theories and the sort of topics we've been discussing today? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, part of the reason I wrote this paper is because there are not very many people who write at that intersection of philosophy of mind and IR. My first recommendation would be read Eric Schwitzgabel's work um, because he's, his paper was, you know, this paper, if materialism is true, then the United States is probably conscious. It, it you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, it was, it's an awesome paper, such a good example of, you know, creative, um, inspired academic writing really makes you think. And it really, you know, when I read that, I knew I needed to write something on, on the subject. So that's what one of the reasons I got interested. I'd read David Chalmers before and some Dan Dennett and stuff like that, Keith Frankish, but you know, Schwitz Gable's paper was really inspirational for me. So I would recommend that. I'd also recommend the work of Patrick Thaddeus Jackson, who is at American University in Washington, DC. He's a really phenomenal scholar, um, writes a lot about philosophy of science, philosophy of social science, but in some of his work, he's incorporated uh, questions of philosophy of mind. He has um, some work on the difference between monism and dualism, which is a distinction that uh, comes from philosophy of mind, comes from ideas of Cartesian dualism, the I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, that is sort of the, the legacy of, um, I, dualism is the legacy of that, that manner of thinking. Uh, so Patrick Jackson's work is really fantastic. He's got a paper in Review of International Studies on monism and dualism. That's great. Um, also his book, The Conduct of Inquiry is just fantastic for anyone who's interested in thinking about how we think about international politics. Um, it's a little bit more about methodology and uh, philosophy of social science, but I think is well worth a read. Um, other than that, I mean, there's, there's tons of phenomenal IR scholars who deal with these issues. Brent Steele's work on ontological security was really inspirational for the final section where I apply this idea of um, of state consciousness, but uh, those would be the ones I'd start with if you're really interested in this um, this concept of state consciousness. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to have you on and to and to chat with you. Oh well, thank you, Kieran. It's been really fun, and it's great meeting you. Hopefully, this <laughs> this podcast can inspire some people to start thinking about these questions, and I'm hopeful that there will inevitably be even 
you know, better work, smarter people than me will uh, take up these issues and, and advance them. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, in conversation with Dr. Adam Lerner on the Pollitt podcast, talking about state consciousness and the intersection between the philosophy of mind and international relations theory. Also, if you have any questions, I've included Dr. Lerner's Twitter handle in the description box for you to be able to get into contact with them. Please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow. Send this episode to all of your friends and all of your family. (laughs) I know I do. My family are fed up a bit by this point. (laughs) But please like, share, subscribe and follow. Click on that little follow button. The more followers, the more content I can bring to you as podcast episodes. Equally, please go and check out the blog and the website if you haven't already done so. There you'll be able to find loads of content and citations and references for everything uh, that doesn't become a podcast episode and all the previous essays that have become podcast episodes. And remember that if you're in a mood for a think, all you have to do is thinkpollit at www.thinkpollit.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.